Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I am not an expert on any of the topics I talk about on Living Through Extinction. While I try to get my information from multiple sources and fact-check what I can, like any human being, I know I must make mistakes. I am grateful for corrections and will be sure to share them on the show, so if you have one for me, send it to livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. I should also inform you that I do swear. I'm not a vulgar individual, but when I get passionate or excited about something, they just kind of flow out. So listener discretion is advised. About a hundred homes. The governor of Missouri declared a state of emergency. Very serious situation here in Hawaii. Earlier this evening, the uh, civil defense calling for an evacuation of all low-lying areas because of a tsunami threat. The sky turns black as giant tornadoes touch down from Nebraska to Texas. Good day, everybody. I'm Ruby, and this is episode 35 of Living Through Extinction, a podcast where the main topic of each episode takes a summarized look at how we can be doing better when it comes to our continued existence. Preceding the main topic are brief segments regarding skepticism, the environment, wild and plant life, and sometimes archaeology. And I finish it all off with a short, selfish segment where I share a little something about myself or something that made or makes me smile. There's not a whole lot of fluff in the show, so all of this is accomplished in under 30 minutes. If you're a returning listener, thank you so much for coming back. If this is the first time you're checking out Living Through Extinction, welcome! I hope you will find it both fun and informative. On episode 27, I did my first skeptical segment focused on logical fallacies. Ad hominem attacks, the bandwagon fallacy, and strawman fallacies were covered. I'm going to continue on that path today with definitions and explanations of three more. The causation-correlation fallacy, circular reasoning, and the no-true-Scotsman fallacy. The causation-correlation fallacy occurs when someone assumes that because two things happen together, they must be connected, and that the correlation between these two things proves that one caused the other. But in reality, the correlation of two things does not imply causation. I believe I have also heard this referred to as the false cause fallacy. But causation correlation is more common, at least in the things that I've heard and read. The official name of this fallacy is come hoc ergo propter hoc, which means with this, therefore because of this. The thing is, coincidences happen. They happen all the time. More often than not, two things correlated with each other are just that, simple coincidences. There are many common everyday examples of this fallacy that don't actually do any harm. They're just kind of silly. Like saying, it's going to rain because you just washed your car. Some people really feel like every time they wash their car, it rains. I actually had a coworker who fit this description. He would watch out the upfront window and say, I washed my car yesterday, so it's definitely going to rain today. Another example would be someone saying that if they get in the shower, the phone will ring. It always rings when they're in the shower, so if they take a shower, it will definitely ring. There are also, unfortunately, harmful examples of this fallacy being used to spread misinformation and cause harm. We know today that the age that autism begins to appear is around the same age as shortly after some vaccines are scheduled. We also know that it doesn't matter if a child is vaccinated or not. If they get autism, it happens around the same age. The correlation with vaccines is just that, a correlation. 
No causation has ever been shown in any way whatsoever. When an anti-vaxxer states that they know vaccines cause autism because babies get it after vaccines, they are committing the causation correlation fallacy. Oh, and to be clear, they are wrong. Next, circular reasoning. Circular reasoning is basically stating, this is true if that is true, and that is true if this is true, and they prove each other without any further evidence. Now, this hasn't come up yet, but there are both formal and informal fallacies, and this one is considered informal because it is more of a defect in the argument itself than the actual committing of a fallacy. An example of circular reasoning that I hear at least weekly these days is, the Bible is the word of God, and I know that's true because it says so in the Bible. The two things depend on each other in this statement, and no outside evidence is provided. Another example is a common statement made about violence in media. Violent media makes violent people. We know because violent people consume violent media. I'm sorry, but what about all the non-violent people who also consume violent media? I just finished season two of The Purge, and I loved it. I am also one of the most non-violent people I've ever known. Peaceful protest is more my jam. Words are my only weapons. I've been a condemner of senseless violence my entire life. While I tend to stay away from committing this fallacy, I often fail to identify it when reading an argument. There are times when it's obvious, but there are also times where it doesn't become obvious until it's actually been pointed out to me. I have a bit of a hard time with this one. And finally, this is one seen every single day, especially if you follow religious people. The no true Scotsman fallacy, also sometimes called an appeal to purity. The Scotsman part of this fallacy's name can be replaced with any group of people. No true Frenchman, no true Muslim, no true American. Using actual Scotsman is a common silly example. Scotsman 1 states that Scotsmen do not wear underwear under their kilts. Scotsman 2 points out that he is a Scotsman and he wears underwear under his kilt. Scotsman 1 declares that no true Scotsman would ever wear underwear under his kilt. This one has become incredibly annoying to me just because of the frequency of it. If I take into account just one of the podcasts I listen to that interviews Christians, it's uncountable how many guests come on and claim that the last guest wasn't a real Christian. I'm a real Christian. Then the next episode, you have another Christian claiming that that guy wasn't a real Christian either. Then there are those who come on and insist that there has never been a real Christian on this show. They all think that they are the first real Christians to appear on the show. It's the same thing again and again and again. And it gets tiring, especially to someone actually looking forward to hearing decent arguments. That's today's three logical fallacies. See if you can identify them in the arguments of others and try to avoid them in arguments of your own. Also, if you catch me in a fallacy, call me on it, and I'll fess up on my next recording. If you care about getting to the truth of an argument, whether it be your own or someone else's, knowing your fallacies is definitely an advantage. Be skeptical, damn it. came across an article about Windows that kind of blew my mind. I don't think it was that new either, so it's something I totally missed when the articles first started popping up about it. This is definitely an advance that could be good for the environment someday. Windows have been turned into transparent solar panels by adding a layer of nanoparticles. 
The nanoparticles created have been named quantum dots, which is cute. These quantum dots have cores made of copper indium sulfide and shells made of zinc sulfide. Each one is a semiconductor with the ability to manipulate light. Two of the best parts about quantum dots are that they are non-toxic and cheap to produce. Two wins right there. The dots are added to the polymer used to glue two panes of glass together and are not visible to the naked eye once the window is dry, complete, and mounted. The panes are framed with solar cells, which can convert the energy of photons to energy for electricity. When the nanoparticles are hit by UV light, they release these photons, which travel outward to the edges of the panes to be taken in and converted by the solar cells. I think I forgot to mention that the frame of solar cells is not visible. It is hidden with the wooden framing for the window. I know that part would matter to a lot of people. I'm all about function and couldn't care less about aesthetics when it comes to this shit, but I know I'm not normal in that aspect. Now, the hope is to someday have these be efficient enough to install in tall buildings, taking advantage of solar energy where possible. We could set up so energy absorbed from the windows could be used first, reducing the pressure on local grids. Tests so far have been done in the Netherlands and the US using panes which are one meter square. So far, people are not able to tell them apart from normal window panes. There are some shortcomings at this time, however. The power conversions are currently pretty low. Basically, the clearer the panels, the lower their conversion rate is. If you wish to have tinted windows, not only are they an option, but the darker the tint, the more energy it will have the ability to output. For comparison, a normal panel that we cannot see through has a power conversion efficiency of 15 to 20%. A completely clear pane of quantum dots only has a conversion efficiency of 3.6%. That information may be discouraging to some who hear it, but keep this in mind. Every bit of natural energy that does not have to be taken from the fossil fuel grid is a plus. And this is just the beginning. This is new science. Give it time. I can't wait to see how far this technology ends up being taken. I wish I could take a peek at it 10 years from now. This is the kind of progress that can help us avoid our own extinction for as long as possible. We need more stories like this. Human interference has been necessary lately to avoid losing certain species and or habitats. Despite our having to interfere, we still want to do so in as natural and non-invasive ways as possible. Coral reefs come up again and again on this show because of how important they are. Climate change, overfishing, Pollution and disease have destroyed 20% of them, and the majority of the rest are threatened. Yet coral reefs support a quarter of all marine life. As the reefs are declining, tons of seaweed is replacing it, making it more difficult for any renewal. A layer of seaweed will absorb the sunlight and oxygen in the water, blocking most of it from getting to the sea life below. In the past, something called scrubbing was done. It was very labor-intensive, as people had to actually remove the seaweed and scrub the rocks and other hard structures of the nuisance. This would work for a little while, but then it would start to come back, and once it started, it would take over again rather quickly. While Caribbean king crabs are here to save the day, these crabs not only consume a ridiculous amount of seaweed, they even eat seaweed species the rest of the sea life avoids. Taking this into account, Researchers set up 12 isolated patches of coral reef in 2014. 
They were broken up into three groups. One group was left untouched. This was the control. Another group was stocked with the crabs and nothing else. The final group had the seaweed removed and scrubbed, and then the crabs were added. When they began, 85% of each area was covered. As expected, the patches which were left alone remained the same. Those patches where crabs were added had a drop of 50%. And those patches where scrubbing was done and then the crabs were added, they had an 80% decline in seaweed cover. And even more encouraging, the crabs actually improved the habitat conditions for corals and fish. And after about a year, small species of both actually began to reappear. In order to be absolutely sure, however, the researchers repeated the study over another year at different locations. That's science, people. Actually taking the steps that may be necessary to disprove what you believe you may have already proven. The results were almost exactly the same. So it has been concluded that an abundance of large native herbivorous crabs on coral reefs is a productive natural process. No harm seems to come from their introduction and it's providing a great new option for seaweed removal and reef restoration. The results were published in the journal Current Biology in December of 2020. One of the things we all share the need for is food. Some of us are getting more than we need and some are going without completely. Decent food is grown, but the only reason we are able to produce the amount that we do is because of the presence of phosphorus in the soil. And phosphorus is one of our many depleting resources. 90% of phosphorus is used in the global food chain in some way, mostly as crop fertilizer. As time goes on and populations grow, the need for it keeps going up. Losing the phosphorus in our soil could greatly limit both food production and feed production for those foods we have to feed. Soil erosion, something Jason and I discussed together on episode 7, is adding to the issues. Removing even more phosphorus from possible growing areas. We didn't always know about phosphorus. It started with farmers observing that when their fields contained phosphorus-rich guano, in other words, when the birds pooped on them, the yields were improved. It didn't take long for mines to be put into operation in the U.S. and China to extract phosphorus ores, which are rocks containing phosphate. Eventually, mineral fertilizers were being put out in hardware and garden stores, and now they are a standard part of everyday farming. After going mainstream, it took only 50 years for the use of phosphates and fertilizers to quadruple. It's my understanding that with current population growth, demand may even double again by 2050. This is not a renewable resource, and there are currently only four decent-sized mines operating. The breakthrough with phosphates in farming is what made it possible to produce the amount of food we have today. It turned out to be a major nutrient that helped plants reach optimal growth and productivity. Without it, our farms could only produce about half and then imagine how much fruits, veggies, and milk products would cost. And grain! Then again, if you are or know someone who lives way up north, you probably already have an idea of just how expensive foods can already end up being. A risk to phosphate is a risk to food security for billions of people. Something to note, 
and I should have brought this up on the meat episode, number 32. Yet another way in which meats are worse per pound than veggies. Get this, meat has a phosphorus footprint that is 50 times higher than most vegetables. The more required for the food chain, the less is obviously available for other things, and phosphorus is actually used in all sorts of important areas. Pharmaceuticals and flame retardants, to name two, they are also the catalysts for chemical industries, building materials, cleaners, detergents, and even food preservatives. Um, wait, that last one is obviously a part of the food chain, so leave that one out. My bad. The rest of those, however, only currently have access to 10% of the available phosphorus. All of the sites visited will be listed in show note posts on the social medias, but I want to shout out the article at theconversation.com. It was called, How the Great Phosphorus Shortage Could Leave Us All Hungry. I know, it's a clickbaity headline. I don't approve of that part, but it is a simple informative read. People don't think about phosphorus every day, unless they're farmers, possibly. It's not a glamorous topic on the lips of the latest famous person going green. But this really is an issue that could be a part of the bigger picture that leads to our possible extinction someday. No phosphorus, way too little food. And even more than that, it's also an essential nutrient for known forms of life. I saw it referred to in one place as a key element of our DNA. It cannot be replaced, and so far we have no synthetic substitute for it. So why isn't it more at the forefront of things? It's just not as interesting, I guess. Not a very clickbaity topic, which is why I can kind of forgive the headline at the conversation. There are even some articles that talk about possible political issues arising as a result of future shortages. Some nations do not have their own reserves, giving control to those countries that do. That's a bit of a frightening thought. Overuse of fertilizers, which is the main culprit, was covered on a recent episode. It was about the runoff and its effects on the soil and water on the meat episode. Two episodes ago? Three? At the point where I talked about all of the feed that has to be grown for livestock and all of the fertilizer which is overused. Not only does this overuse harm the environment in the ways I described in the meat episode, it also adds to the supply problem. Less than a third of what is used is actually being taken in by the plants. The rest is either accumulating or washing away, and that seems very wasteful for a product that's a limited resource. What we are in need of is a way to reduce demand by finding a way to make more efficient use of fertilizer and or find other places to obtain it. As gross as it sounds to many people, collecting our poop is actually a more efficient way and would be a huge help in this area. If science doesn't kick some serious ass quickly enough in this field, the feeding of our growing population could depend on it. Speaking of science, there are some things being studied which, if fruitful, may lead to being able to modify plants so they will use up more of the total fertilizer, requiring less to be sprayed. Other studies are being done to find ways to improve soil phosphate management, and even more studies are being done to understand how plants may adapt to limited phosphorus. Some interesting things we now know. If a plant is starved of phosphate, it will stop the growth of its primary root. Energy is instead used to grow more secondary roots and root hairs. 
This increases the plant's ability to absorb phosphate from lower levels in the soil. Plants can reassign stored phosphate to other parts of themselves. Plants can change their gene expressions to adapt, increasing the expression of genes involved in phosphate uptake from the soil. Progress is good, but there are still some regulatory genes that have to be figured out. These are all steps, and they could one day lead to something huge that would mitigate our phosphorus shortage. It's a start. One more discovery, this one reported in the Journal of Plant Physiology. They have discovered the protein in plants that is able to sense phosphorus levels in soil and instruct the plant to adjust its growth and flowering. I can see where the manipulation of this will come into play as this progresses. The best thing we could unlock right now would be the secret of developing crops that do better in low phosphates, not just for our environment, but for the bellies of our future generations as well. Oh, and if anyone forwards me that opinion piece from seven years ago that says there is nothing to be concerned about when it comes to phosphorus shortages, I will publicly berate you. I know this isn't the right segment for this comment, but still, be skeptical, dammit. Before I get going on something that I hope will make some of you smile, who has seen the picture of the squirrel riding a woodpecker? I don't know why, but I so badly want that picture to be real. I'm going to be sad if and when it comes out that it's a fake. What I actually want to point out to you all, however, are pictures of quokas. Sorry, quokas. Not only do these macropod marsupials look like the happiest animals in the world, they may actually be one of the happiest animals in the world. There's something about their appearance that makes it always look like they're smiling, which makes them super cute to the human eye. It's seriously hard to look at a quokka straight on and not feel a twinge of a smile or a little bit of warming of your heart, unless you're some kind of psychopath, I guess. And they spend their lives foraging and being spoiled rotten by tourists, so they have reason to be happy little critters. The tourists love them because they are curious creatures with friendly personalities. They're used to people being around and will hop right up to you in hopes of a treat, which you shouldn't give them. While some are found in the eucalyptus forests and along riverbanks on mainland Australia, most are on the islands off the west coast. The great majority of these are on a single island. Out of 14,000 total in the wild, 12,000 are on this one 18.9 square kilometer island. That's 7.3 square miles. Quokkas like to hang out in clans and are very social with each other as well as with people. The plant eaters are hopping animals, closely related to kangaroos and wallabies. They eat swamp peppermint and other grains and store fat in their tail for lean times, which I believe is also a trait of the kangaroo, though I may be recalling that wrong. I'm interrupting at this point to insert a little something. I don't think I've ever done this before. After this episode was completed, I was telling my husband about quokkas. He googled them because he wanted to see their faces. But the very first thing that came up on his phone was a headline that said quokkas throw their babies at predators to escape. No, <laughs> they do not do this. Not only is this not true, but I immediately found a page that goes to lengths to show how and why it can't be true. Apparently their arms aren't really built in a way that would give them that kind of dexterity. Anyway, since I'm telling everyone to Google quokkas, I figured I'd better jump on this piece of misinformation and insert it here before uploading. 
Quokkas do not throw their babies at predators. I now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. It is thought that there were tens of thousands of them on this island when it was observed in the 1700s. Observers described them as rats the size of cats, and the island was named Rotnest Island, which means rat's nest island, due to the sheer numbers of them all over the place. Even back then, it was the highest population of quokkas. This has been their island for hundreds of years. Unfortunately, the people who saw them as rats considered them vermin, of course. So the mainland population was taken out by a combination of poisoning and the bringing in of foxes to Australia in the 1930s. Since then, it's been taken out even further from human-caused habitat destruction. Today, quokkas are considered vulnerable to extinction by the International Union for Conservation of Nature. That would be too bad. They're not an animal causing any problems, and just looking at them can make most people smile in most circumstances. And people absolutely love them and really do get joy from them. This 18-point square kilometer island gets 500,000 tourists a year. The quokkas have adapted well to the masses of humans and are rather easy to get to appear to be smiling at cameras, so of course we love taking pictures of them. Selfies with quokkas are a favorite tourist activity these days. While this is okay, it is actually illegal to touch them, so no trying to wrap an arm around them or anything like that for the selfie. No matter how huggable and soft they may appear, don't let yourself be tempted to reach out. Also, if you have the opportunity to spend some time on Rotnest Island with these friendly, adorable animals, please don't feed them. There are animals which will not eat food that's bad for them. But quokkas are not those animals. If you offer them a food that can hurt them, they will consume it. Anything bread-based is very bad. It sticks to their gums and eventually leads to a terrible infection called lumpy jaw. So please, stick to the selfies without giving them a piece of your sandwich, no matter how much they may appear to be begging and smiling up at you. And no matter how much your heart may melt at their gaze, no food for the quokkas. While not common, there are biting incidents every year, but those incidents reported appear to be accidental bitings when taking food from the hands of children, who shouldn't be feeding them anyway, right? So I consider that a lesson learned. That is not the quokka's fault. That is the person's fault. I wanted to share about quokkas today because when I look at some of the selfies and other pictures of them out there, they always make me smile. And we all need a reason to smile sometimes. So if you're feeling blue one day, give quokkas a Google. It's spelled Q-U-O-K-K-A. I hope they help lift your spirits as they sometimes do mine. The notes I had around me have all been flipped, so that means I'm done for this episode. Thank you for listening. I hope your health and sanity are replenished daily, despite what you may be facing every day. Thank you to Jason Martin for composing the intro and outro for the show. And thank you to Kathy Rayner and Paul Palmer for their musical contributions on the violin and guitar. I hope you will join me in two weeks for episode 36 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoyed listening to Living Through Extinction and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to like, rate, subscribe, comment, and share. You can do this on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, or your favorite podcast platform under Living Through Extinction. Or on Twitter under LTE Pod. Living Through Extinction can be found on most podcast platforms, but if you are unable to find it on yours, let me know, and I will look into rectifying that. You can email me the name of your provider at livingthroughextinction 
at gmail.com.